0: Hi, everyone. My name is Haley, and you're listening to another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast on addiction, mental health, and treatment. We break down these topics with the help of addiction medicine specialist Dr. Bott.
1: Hi, Haley. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great, and I'm really excited to talk about today's subject. We're going to dive into the world of psychedelics, more specifically, hallucinogens that in recent years have been used in a medicinal manner or have at least been researched in helping people with certain mental illnesses. But there's a lot of conflicting opinions on drugs like psilocybin, cannabis, and ketamine. So it's important to look at the whole picture, the history and the realities of using any mind-altering substance. Dr. Bott, does psilocybin, cannabis, and ketamine all belong to the hallucinogen class of drugs?
1: Yes, they do. Um, Cannabis... From a diagnostic perspective, when we often talk about um, it being used in an abusive manner, they're, they're often separated um, from the hallucinogen class. But in essence, cannabis, um, just like ketamine and psilocybin, can produce altered perceptions, altered uh, sense of reality. So, um, yes, technically can fall under hallucinogen class.
0: And what's this like altered perception of reality? Like how do these drugs affect the user?
1: So think about this, you know, when we use something that alters our senses and, you know, our, our senses of smell, touch, uh, sight, um, producing something that's hallucinatory. These are things that are not real, alter sense of reality. And these three drugs um, that we're talking about is, uh, is something that can produce something that is a false perception. Now, the the unique thing about a hallucinogen is that not only can it produce a false perception, but uh, it doesn't necessarily alter your sensorium. So it's not like you're necessarily nodding out or falling asleep, maybe like an opiate or um, alcohol. So you you somewhat stay intact that way in terms of often your alertness to a certain degree. But um, during that time, your perceptions of what's real and what's not. Um, are, are, are significantly changed. And um, depending on how much you've used, what kind of tolerance you have, and um, you know what's the potency of the drug at that time.
0: Okay. Could you kind of break down, I guess, the effects of each drug individually of psilocybin, cannabis, and ketamine? Because they do all produce different types of effects, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, ketamine. Let's let's talk about that first, because ketamine, I think, has gotten a lot of attention recently. Um, not only because of its uh, recent medicinal um, scientific arguments that it can be used for um, a variety of mental health conditions, the fact that a certain chemical structure resembling ketamine, esketamine, uh, has been approved by the FDA. For the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, so let's just talk about ketamine as the main drug. Ketamine itself is a it's a dissociative anesthetic. It's it's a it's a Schedule Three, a controlled substance, but it is used in medicine for um, anesthesia. It's also used uh, for certain pain control conditions um, in people who are needing lighter sedation. People who are uh, suffering from significant burns are often um given ketamine and uh ketamine is used quite a bit in veterinary medicine but when it's abused ketamine is is often can be uh used to have a, a euphoria, a sense of uh relaxation, uh a depersonalization, derealization, a sense of being out of body type of experience. And and, and these often occur um uh, similarly with uh, psilocybin and um, and with cannabis to a certain degree. And just to be uh, more succinct, you know, the point is is that these drugs in essence change the way you perceive your surroundings. And that's the commonality behind this. And um, you know, a lot of people are gonna have different effects. Some people can have life-threatening consequences from ketamine it can lead to overdose and death I've seen this in the hospital people enter um, you know what we call k-holes and 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 they they become totally psychotic and they can be um, simultaneously um, having respiratory depression hyperthermia they can go through a lot of different medical issues um, with psilocybin we don't see it to that that degree people do have a sense of pleasure elevation of of mood. Um, and, but you know, when we have altered sense of perceptions, we can act differently and act dangerously, um, because we're reacting to things that are often not there. And, and with cannabis, you know, many people who use it recreationally, they tend to feel good. It slows time, it slows space, alters, you know, the way we perceive things. And, and again, with tolerance, they can seem or appear or be less intoxicated. But at the same time, many people who use cannabis can get very paranoid, anxious, um, even psychotic. So, you know that, that's a, that that question really is unique to um, each individual, and again, how often they've used and their tolerance to to those drugs.
0: Okay, so you mentioned ketamine is a Schedule Three drug. Um, could you what's the definition of that for our listeners?
1: So the, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and the Controlled Substances Act—you know—this was established um, back in the '70s to help us classify drugs based on certain uh, addictive potential and um, medicinal purposes and 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 safety. So one being the most um, potentially addictive or having no real clinical medical utility on an everyday uh, basis all the way to schedule five, which has the least addictive potential and, um, or the least degree of safety concern. Um, there's actually eight characteristics I don't want to really get into here, but the the bottom line is it is spread out one, two, three, four, and five. And so ketamine being uh, a schedule three shows a certain degree of, um, addiction potential, but it does have, um, medicinal utility.
0: What is cannabis's schedule right now?
1: Cannabis is actually schedule one. And I think that is often where people can argue, or this is where the controversy lies. You know, I think being that cannabis, marijuana is used so frequently amongst people around the world. And many people who use it recreation are going to say, wait a minute, this is not causing me harm. Um, I'm actually living and functioning with this. Why is this a um, controlled substance, why is it illegal to possess in many places, and why is it ranked so low or high, depending on how you want to view it, on that controlled, um, you know, controlled scheduling. So, um, yeah, it is it, it is a one, and it's one based on many historical factors of, um, that were established um, in the 1900s all the way into the 1970s when the DEA classification system was put in place.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that. I, When I was reading about this, I saw that cannabis was classified as a Schedule One drug in the 70s. And I wasn't sure actually if it had changed or not since then, but apparently it hasn't. Can you kind of talk about, I guess, the history of why that happened, why it was put in that schedule?
1: Well, cannabis has such an interesting history. I mean, cannabis has been used over thousands of years and, um, it's, it's a drug that, or a plant that was, uh, basically, uh, native to Asia. And it came across, I think, to the, to North America with the colonists. And, um, ultimately it, it was used, it was used in textiles and fibers through the hemp plant. There were so many different other non, um, you know, medicinal or non, um, I guess, intoxicant use to that. So it was actually used for something. And then, um, and it was used for for many, many, many years. There was, I believe, I saw in the literature somewhere that, um, you know, back in the 1900s, there was an issue where uh, many people were coming during the Mexican Revolution. And they were coming to America and they also used cannabis quite a bit. And uh, unfortunately, during the Great Depression, there was a there was there was a lot of conflict between uh, people coming and taking American jobs. And, uh, you know, there was really a lot of retaliation on, um, you know, there was a lot of perception of those coming from Mexico and using uh, cannabis at the same time. And things got blended together in, in in banning that, hey, are other people coming to take American jobs? And, you know, societal and political interest twisted and and, and really kind of banned um, cannabis along with uh, what was happening with the perception of Mexican uh, people coming and taking jobs during that time. And, you know, it was a a very difficult time uh, for for America. As we fast forward, though, you know, we saw a lot of hallucinogens take a societal role um, I had a political agenda, uh, especially during, uh, you know, the sixties and seventies with certain cultures. And, uh, again, at the time of Vietnam with the Vietnam war and, you know, people were really big into using, um, the, these hallucinogens, uh, these drugs to kind of have a spiritual connection, but at the same time, those people often had societal and political, uh, views. Um, you know, drug abuse became an issue, um, quite a bit. And so in the seventies, um, we saw the, the aggressive, um, stance by the, by the government, by the executive branch of the government on controlling substances and, uh, marijuana being one of them. And they basically saw that as a, as a, as a problem. And for whatever, again, I say political and social reasons, um, ranked it and put it up there um, in the Schedule 1 class. And since then, it hasn't been removed. And I think that opens up the doors to the debate of why should it be or why hasn't it been, um, you know, taken out of there. And I think that's why we're talking about it today, because it's a big, it's a big topic right now.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there really is a debate surrounding that, because, you know, public perception and, you know, certain laws – Surrounding cannabis really have shifted over time. You know, can you kind of touch on where we're at today in 2021? You know, the laws surrounding medicinal marijuana and recreational use. Okay, I want
1: to touch on that. Well, I want to, I want to kind of interject something because, you know, my last answer, I, I, you know, I kind of maybe in my mind was bringing a huge picture to this, but I want to say something about these, these drugs, especially cannabis and psilocybin. I'm not going to talk about ketamine because that's not a plant-based thing. But, you know, these other drugs or ingredients, let's, let's use that, have been used over over centuries um, for, you know, rituals and and, and spiritual um, things. You know, um, and I, I'm not trying to condone or am I not trying to, uh, you know, be opposed to it. But at the same time, I just want to put it in context that these were drugs that Many, many, many hundreds of years ago, many cultures, many societies um, throughout the world were using these things for uh, spiritual, religious, um, connecting to a higher sense of spirituality to their gods, whatever you want to say it, because of the uh, sensations and the uh, symptoms that it did produce when they used it in that way. But also, also, it was used medicinally. I mean, I know the history back, you know, from Asia that a lot of the hemp and cannabis plants were used for medicinal purposes way back when. So I think as we've evolved, a lot of times our pharmaceuticals, our science is going back to the basics. Medications come from a lot of natural plant-based things. And so, um, you know, things are often, pushed due to societal and political agendas um, and, and, and sometimes the science um, is taken by those who have a scientific, have a societal or political agenda and can prematurely accelerate a uh, scientific researcher or or query and use that um, and jump steps. And that leads me kind of to answer your question about the legalization of it, because the question comes to: Are we legalizing it based on societal and political, you know, agendas, or has it been legalized due to medicinal and health um, benefit? Mm-hmm. And so, you know that you know that, that's that's something that I think um, is something that's a bigger uh, a, a bigger question, a, a bigger uh, platform. It needs to be um, entertained, you know, um, because I don't know if that's something we can answer here. Has it become legalized? Yes, many states have legalized it. Is it legal federally? No, but has it been legalized um, medicinally in many states? Definitely. Has it been legalized um, recreationally? I think in about, what, 10 states now they have uh, uh, legalized cannabis. So um, for recreational purposes. So. You know, they're there. It's here where it goes, I believe, is up to the scientific and community um, to to bring that evidence forth, to establish its medicinal and scientific utility, to get it out of these probably antiquated classifications and not let societal and political agendas, um, you know, abuse the scientific Um, literature in the wrong way. Because just because we're experimenting, we're researching, we are doing the due diligence that needs to be done and it it shouldn't be, you know, distorted. And and that can often be done like it was done before that led to the scheduling of it in the first place.
0: Right. Okay. And that this kind of might be almost the same question, just a different drug. But so psilocybin is currently listed as a schedule one drug. However, it's decriminalized in some cities and legal for therapeutic use. You know, in Oregon, what's the history of psilocybin, and why has there been a shift towards decriminalization?
1: Psilocybin, I think, I I, I want to use it in, a, in an analogous way to 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 cannabis. That this was something that was used long time ago. You know, for for religious and spiritual purposes, and you know those they those have low thresholds for certain types of toxicities and overdosing, so it's it's kind of been you know looked at as like how come then it can't be used when there are other things out there that are legal that can kill us so um it's not that simple though because you know things aren't necessarily uh you know standardized. And that's the problem. I mean, you know, we do have a vetting process and people might agree or disagree. And I'm not here to, you know, to get on this podcast so people can be like argumentative. I'm trying to keep an open mind that the fact that the FDA is here, we do have to kind of follow certain processes to help, you know, save people from getting exposed to things that aren't good for them. So even though, yes, I think in Oregon, when we use the word term decriminalization, or wherever it's been decriminalized, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not illegal to possess. It's just like this agenda of that city is not to take out and hunt down people that have psilocybin and persecute to the fullest extent of the law. And so these are things that I think people need to put into context. I don't think people understand that when they use terms like that or they throw out things. And again, they take. So if we say psilocybin has been used spiritually and it has been used in religious situations, because of its perceptual changes in our consciousness altering um, you know, characteristics, that doesn't mean it's good for you. I don't want your consciousness to be altered while you're driving a vehicle and you're waiting for a red light and all of a sudden you think that red light is five minutes away when it's literally five seconds away. And so this is where I think people's agendas uh, manipulate scientific information. Um, just because you can't overdose it on, it doesn't mean it's good. You know, Things that are natural does not mean sand is natural? I don't mean to put it in my mouth and swallow it. I mean, these are stupid things that people often talk about. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're hoping that we shed light and bring light to the fact that science is moving in the direction where these things should be looked at um, because they have shown in much research to have benefit for certain conditions. And I'm sure you're going to ask me about as we go along.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about both sides of that, of course. I want to talk about how these drugs are used in a therapeutic setting, but also how they may still be dangerous. And, you know, I'm under the impression that they are still dangerous. No, you know, I mean, any mind-altering substance that you take can be dangerous. Like, you know, for example, you mentioned driving a car. But before we, you know, touch on that, can you kind of explain a little bit in layman's terms how psilocybin, cannabis, and ketamine are used in a therapeutic setting?
1: Cannabis, medicinal marijuana, like I said, centuries ago, there's been uh, literature and research that has shown that, you know, cannabis hemp plant has been used for control of pain. And there has been, uh, I think there was something to do with how it affects our GI system and it has controlled, you know, stomach aches and stomach pain. We've seen that now evolve where medicinal marijuana is used off there for cancer related pain, nausea, the, um, people who lose their appetite, anorexia, there's, there's good indication for it. And these are again in standardized, um, you know, reproducible dosages where, um, THC and active ingredients are, are measured and used at those times though, when a lot of this was, you know, uh, coming about, you know, the, the level of the psychoactive compound THC was a lot lower. Now we've hybridized and used many different formations of, um, you know, cannabis plants that where um, the tetrahydrocannabinoid uh, in active ingredient, the psychoactive ingredient percentage and potency is a lot higher. And so it, it's obviously going to give a different effect. So we can't compare, you know, recreational use that might have, um, you know, a, a different effect than medicinal use. But, you know, medicinal has been used to, for anxiety, for depression, for pain, for, for stomach, uh, issues, uh, for appetite issues. Um, you know, there's a plethora of other neurological stuff that, um, has been opened up where cannabis is used for psilocybin. There's been research that has shown again, for treatment, resistant depression, um, anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, trauma, alcohol use, tobacco use disorders, you know, psilocybin is being looked at with positive results and and research in that side too. And with ketamine, ketamine has been, um, you know, uh, already it's an itemer has been used um, as ketamine. It's already been FDA approved for treatment resistant depression and major depressive disorder with suicidal ideations. And and that's because, um, you know, it, it went through those studies and has shown to be Beneficial and ketamine is, been, is used off label, um, you know, um, by those who are willing to um, take that opportunity or that chance um, and, and have it administered for alleviation of, um, of depression, of trauma, of anxiety, and other psyche, psychological and neurological issues. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot, there's a wide variety of things that people have in research that are still underway. And now just with, especially with S-ketamine, has come to the forefront of actual um, FDA approval.
0: As somebody in your field, is it a concern that people are going to see some of this research and see you know, the, the positive effects that it's had for some people in certain studies and try to self-medicate with one of these drugs?
1: If you are suffering with addiction, you're self-medicating anyway with many different things. Um, yes, if we have an agenda and the agenda is to use for the purpose of getting high, um, we can misconstrue or we can manipulate the information that's at hand and use it to get high um, under the guise of saying it's helping me a- address something. But then in real life, people often become addicted to something because it is helping them with the underlying condition that might not be getting addressed. So, you know, yeah, that's that is a fear that we have that people are going to take research and preliminary information and they're going to take preliminary information and make it into propaganda and make it into fact and um you know i think that can be dangerous you know be, especially because um we we've seen that um it still needs to be proven it still needs proper um trials and proper scientific experimentation um, to ensure that these are not just, you know, incidental things, but these are large mainstream reproducible events before we can say in, in the medical community that this is something that we should apply for a disorder. Um, I just, you know, look at all the scrutiny that we've had with the COVID vaccine. Um, you know, people are like, is it good? Did we cut steps to do, or do whatever? Well, because nobody's getting high off the COVID vaccine. What's the other um, agenda somebody could have to say that this is good for you. I don't see any. So, you know, but that's not the same to say with with a, a huge addiction problem where cross addiction and poly addiction is a is a fact here in the United States and around the world. So saying somebody might use this with ulterior motives and manipulate the facts. That's not far fetched. It's happening all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that happens with other drugs that we see used for treatment like opioids. You no. Know?
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I I want to talk about the dangers of these drugs too. So, you know, if I ask you, "Oh, can using cannabis ever be dangerous?" Someone might be listening and be like, "No way. Like <laughs> cannabis can't be dangerous." But, you know, I want to hear your stance on that.
1: So, that yeah, I I'm I've heard it. I, you know, I'm an addiction medicine physician. That's what people tell me all the time. Because they they try to, you know, de-comparing it maybe to drugs that are more dangerous. Listen, in my opinion, is cannabis as dangerous as opiates or or maybe alcohol? I don't believe so. I don't find it to be that way. Um, Based on somebody taking one hit of of, of a joint, um, I I don't think it's going to have the same effect that I've seen probably if you touch fentanyl or carb fentanyl. But that doesn't mean, though, um, I'm condoning cannabis' use uh, for whatever uh, and, and recreationally, there is a danger. Look, there's a lot of studies out there that do show and do demonstrate how much anxiety cannabis produces in individuals, how much psychosis it can produce in individuals. And I have seen patients. I'm not talking about one or five or, or 20. I'm talking hundreds of patients over the years that have developed psychotic symptoms with cannabis and no other drugs were on board. No, somebody could say, of course, they were predetermined, predestined, predisposed to maybe develop a psychotic disorder possibly. um, But we don't know, but there is research that does show that there is a huge correlation with the development or unmasking of psychotic disorders with cannabis. So, you know, not only that, cannabis impairs you. It's, it's, it alters your sense of reality. Maybe for that tolerant individual, it might not be such a big deal. They've become accustomed to it. they they can manipulate their car or do certain things, uh, work or, or talk. And you wouldn't even know, but then you talk to that 18 year old who might not be using it that long, who's really having that robust high, who's getting into a motor vehicle accident or killing somebody because they were intoxicated with cannabis. And this applies to all of these, these are mind altering. They're called psychedelics because they do alter our mind and they do alter our perception. And, um, you know, it's just premature to say globally, we can just apply it and let these things run loose because there's a lot of negative outcomes that can happen. Nobody's Mm -hmm. saying that there's not potential positive stuff there. No, I'm not saying that I'm saying that I can't say the opposite. It's just, I can let it run loose.
0: Right. I, I want to jump back to something you said, because I just think it's kind of important to touch on. But so are you saying that those people who were predisposed with psychotic disorders, they would have never presented if they hadn't smoked cannabis?
1: Yeah, that's what we have seen. We have seen that there is a a, a phenomenon there, that there is correlation that cannabis could have a, like an epigenetic type of influence where it can unmask somebody who had a brewing or underlying or um, somewhat subdued, um, you know, psychotic disorder and that. Exposure to cannabis uh, unmasked it mm-hmm. and um, it's a little Russian roulette there. You know, it's, it's hard to to um, hard to say 100 percent. And um, but it's, it's a risk that somebody takes. And I, I, I have seen patients who have used high amounts of cannabis. And again, you know, we're quantifying, we're qualifying all of our statements here, you know, and I'm sure the counter argument would be qualified and quantified too. But um, yeah, that's what I'm saying, that we have, we have research that shows that if somebody has some underlying psychotic spectrum disorder, can it be in Or is there a correlation with exposure to cannabis? Yes.
0: And what are some of the other long-term effects from abusing any of these drugs?
1: It's hard to answer all of that because there are three distinct drugs that we're talking about. And we're hoping to say on this podcast that there are, we're looking at the podcast saying that, look, these are historical drugs that are illegal. But look, there's medicinal value that's potentially out there. It's being researched that it might swing. We just don't want people who suffer with addiction going out and using it in medicinal purposes name or other therapeutic purposes name and abusing it this is the bottom line i think that we're trying to get out here on this yeah. on this show yeah and and, and, at, and at the end of the day that that's really there you know long-term effects you know we have seen that cannabis is often starts out uh benign especially in adolescence and and, and young teenage uh, uh young adulthood and it becomes something that they they smoke and use chronically and it leads to many different things like anxiety like depression like uh other antisocial type of behaviors i'm not saying cannabis leads to that and i'm sorry if that's uh the sentence i used i but we have seen studies that often externalizing anti-conduct disorder they tend to have a higher propensity for using cannabis. Um, also, um, people becoming a not necessarily wanting to do anything unless they smoke, can't sleep unless they smoke, feel anxious unless they smoke. So there's this also negative consequences from this long term exposure that affects them psychologically, they become physically dependent on it. Um, because there's a physical withdrawal to it, there's an irritability, there's a stomach problem, there's GI issues, there's anxiety, there's all of these things that can happen. And not to mention the psychological withdrawal that happens um, with, with with cannabis. And, and with, with ketamine, let me just add to this. Ketamine, I've seen people die from this stuff when I was doing training in New York. I've seen many people just psychotically out of control, people who are on uh, life support because of this, um, because it is an anesthetic agent. It's a dissociative anesthetic. And and, and psilocybin to, to a much less degree. Um, I have seen that. And, and and so the bottom line is there are negative effects that can happen from any of these things. And especially if you're intoxicated and you get behind a car or doing some work or some sport, whatever, if you're using a hallucinogen and trying to do those activities, well, you have an altered sense of uh, perception. And I, I don't know how much that's going to go well when you need to be um, you know, having an accurate uh, reality testing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you mentioned the physical dependence. Um, in the past, I've had people tell me, that, you know, they can't go to sleep unless they smoke marijuana. But at the same time, they're saying that, you know, they're not addicted to it. And, you know, they can quit whenever they want, really. But I'm like, if you can't sleep without it, (laughs) that's physical dependence, right?
1: Yeah, it's definitely shown to have those, you know, withdrawal signs. People become tolerant to it. They need more to take the same effect, get the same effect. And um, although maybe these things are not life-threatening, um, you know, we do see cravings and people getting irritable, people becoming depressed and people having trouble with all of those sleep issues, cheat, headaches. Headaches is a big one that, that I've seen, you know, people who stop using. So there's obviously these symptoms that do occur and, um, these symptoms often lead to you wanting to use again. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, it's not as benign as people who want to make it as benign, um, want to make it as benign say it is. And at the same time, um, as an addiction physician, I I could say it's probably not as, as as pathologic as, uh, maybe it's been made out to be. But like I said, I think I want to be open-minded here that all of these drugs and many others, uh, we need to be, we need to look at them. We need research to take its place. We need people to do proper investigation to see how and well these previously historically, you know, banned agents or taboo agents might be utilized to help people's lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know we kind of touched on it about if you can actually become addicted to these drugs. Can you get treatment? Like, is that something that you've seen people seeking out treatment for addiction to one of these drugs?
1: Yeah, I mean, usually they don't rank it right there up at the top because often these, these products, um, um, I mean, ketamine has seen people who have a significant addiction and substance use disorder, uh, cannabis is often, um, by itself or with multiple other stuff. Um, and I've seen silo seven, depending on the geographic area of the country, we've seen it too. Um, ultimately, you know, when you're using a substance that it's, 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 you're using increasing amounts, you're failing to keep up with your obligations. You're having negative consequences. You're, you're having physical issues as a result of it. Um, you know, and, and you have to keep upping the ante. You meet the definition for addiction. Well, you know, these are people who suffer with substance use disorders because of those things, and they they are seeking out treatment for it. But often, again, they minimize it because maybe it's not the drug causing them the most impairment. I've seen cannabis with alcohol, cannabis with cocaine, cannabis with opiates, and usually they, they'll say, oh, cannabis isn't the bigger problem. But yet, it, you know, when you, when you tease out the, the history, it's a huge problem for them because that's something that they haven't been able to live without or can't do anything without. And, and without it, they have a lot of issues and because of it, they've had a lot of issues. So um, yeah, you know, this is something that um, people can get treatment for. And if they're meeting that addiction, substance use disorder criteria and have that impairment, they should seek treatment for it and help is out there um, at at multiple um, levels of care.
0: Closing out on this topic, Dr. Bot, is there anything else that you think people should be aware of?
1: Again, I think we need to be educated as a society more and more, you know, as a consumer, as a listener, as a user, or whoever someone may be, you know, let's not jump to conclusions. Um, based on what we know, there are negative consequences to all of these things and the potential scientific or medicinal or even recreational plus points are usually anecdotal. And until we can show and, and have it go through the proper vetting process to legitimize it and use it, um, I would let that take its course before we start, you know, um, singing its praises. But the, the the point is, as I said earlier, I, I do believe it warrants um, the the exploration and the research that a lot of large medical centers and large research institutes are doing because, um, in at least in the preliminary studies we've seen and shown benefit and, and, and and actual practice when it comes to certain things in terms of medicinal marijuana and ketamine and preliminary silo seven, we've seen, um, preliminary good evidence. So as long as it's not used in the wrong way and that applies to anything, you know, um, Let's, let's look out for the, the, the potential benefits that um, come out in, in the scientific literature in the hopefully next many months to years to come.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for helping me break this down today, Dr. Bott. And to our listeners, addictioncenter.com has information on all of the drugs we talked about today, as well as more podcast episodes. You can also listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So make sure to go check out some of our other episodes. Thanks for listening to Straight Talk with the Doc.